0: Welcome to the Dash Arts podcast, seeing the world through an artistic lens. I'm Josephine Burton, and in today's podcast, we're revisiting a piece which brought together the voices from an extraordinary community of women, bound together as a result of human rights violations in Crimea. Crimean Tatars have been persecuted by Russian occupying forces since 2014. Obscured by a news blackout, the world knows little of these events, little of the prisoners themselves, their families, and life in Crimea under occupation.
1: It's 5am, everybody's asleep. All of a sudden, somebody starts banging on the door, the alarm goes off.
2: When they uh, asked me to bid him farewell, I refused. We won't say farewell, you'll be back.
0: We hear from the wives of the political prisoners who've been arrested for the act of documenting as citizen journalists the reality of their lives. The women describe their friendships, their love affairs, and the impact that the imprisonment has had on their families and themselves.
2: Oh, yeah, there was was one. He tried playing the nice cop while the other one never let us go. So... So we were sitting there, you see, and um, the nice one, he said to her, Hey, hey, don't be afraid. Nothing bad's
3: going on. It's all good. It's all good. And she, she, she replied, what's good about it? You came.
2: That by itself means nothing good is happening.
4: Fifteen people entered at once. They showed the warrant straight away, which said, well, namely that... Timur was going to be imprisoned from 20 years to life. And so they began searching the living room here. They examined our computer from top to bottom, took his phone, and they started moving little by little into the hall, the kitchen, rummaged through the freezer of all things, the microwave, put their hands on every bowl, every plate. and when I asked them what on earth it was they were looking for, they they said it was something about literature and weapons and so on. When they finally reached the bedroom, they turned their attention to the children's backpacks and started investigating every page of the report book and every notebook.
0: In January 2023, I worked with a cast of actors and activists and journalists to stage a reading of Crimea 5am at the Kiln in London. We'd actually planned to produce the show before the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine, and with the advent of the war, it became even more important to tell the story. There's an increasing awareness that the war can only have happened due to the earlier occupation of Crimea in 2014, and the war can only fully end when Russia retreats from Crimea. There's so much history, so much context that goes even ahead of 2014. After the show, Rory Finnin was able to give us a taste of this. Rory is an associate professor of Ukrainian studies at Cambridge University.
5: It's worth us stepping back for a moment. Russia, as we, as we know it, is best thought of as an expansionist land empire. And Crimea is, is one of its most prized colonies. And it's prized because it's a center of myth-making about both the Russian empire and the Soviet Union. And the thing about this particular myth is it's burdened, in a way, with a paradox. And the paradox is that uh, the Russian state is, is great, that its greatness can spread far and wide, but that this greatness is somehow natural. And the Crimean Tatars represent how this is untrue. On the peninsula, the Crimean Tatars have been a long-standing sovereign national minority indigenous people recognized under Ukrainian law now uh, for centuries. In the 19th century, decades after Catherine II annexed, Crimea in 1783, there were attempts by the czars to ethnically cleanse the peninsula. And in fact, uh, czar Alexander II used this term achiscienye, to, to cleanse um, the uh, Tatar population from the peninsula. Uh, in 1850, Crimean Tatars constituted about 80% of the entire population of the peninsula, but by the turn of the 20th century, they dwindled to uh, 25%. So Stalin in the 20th century... Uh, sought to finish what the Tsar started. 1944, he deports the remaining population of the Crimean Tatars, around 200,000 people, to Central Asia. So you saw all these points of origin for so many of the activists in Uzbekistan, for instance. Uzbekistan and Tashkent in particular was an extremely important center of the uh, Crimean Tatar national movement in the 20th century. And so in the twilight of the Soviet period, the Supreme Soviet actually recognized that this deportation was quote-unquote barbaric. That was the term they used, barbaric. They allowed, finally, Crimean Tatars to return, but it came uh, at a great cost to a very vibrant, pacifist national movement. And this is really important for us to understand, that the Crimean Tatar national movement in the 20th century was by far the most organized, uh, the most compelling, the most influential movement of dissent in the Soviet Union. So every single uh, group or movement um, that emerged in the Soviet period took a lot of cues from the Crimean Tatars. This is something we've forgotten in a lot of contemporary Sovietology, um, but it's really important to recognize now. And that pacifism was key. Um, they, they believed in nonviolent resistance. So, fast forward to our current day, and I guess this is a huge threat in so many ways. There are, let's say, two camps into which so many Crimean Tatars are now placed. Nareman Jalal, a uh, more secular uh, Crimean Tatar activist leader in the majlis, as uh, our esteemed colleague, Ali Malia, just pointed out. Um, they are typically um, labeled extremists. And those who are more religiously uh, observant are often labored, uh, labeled terrorists. And so his al is a fundamentalist pan-Islamic group. It's legal here in the UK. It's legal in Ukraine. It's legal in the United States. But in Russia, it is not. And so they have been using the specter of Islamic terrorism to oppress and suppress a pacifist, nonviolent Islamic uh, national movement. And that is extremely dangerous because, of course, we can look to, given the domestic climate here, we can look to all these problems of so-called Islamic fundamentalism, we can see an example of something different. Um, a very impactful, very involved, passionate movement that has never resorted to violence at all. And that is under threat. And these provocations from the Russian security services are uh, on display in this performance, uh, which was, of course, a privilege to see.
0: In three minutes and 41 seconds, Rory managed to fit in nearly 240 years of history. It was extremely impressive. Before we hear from people involved in bringing the women's stories to the stage... I wanted to introduce our new podcast producer, Marie Horner. Um, lovely to have you
2: with us, Marie. Oh, it's really lovely to be here and what an honour for this to be the first episode that I make and to hear these stories. Oh my gosh, these incredible women. Yeah, they the, the stories are amazing and we had so much, it was such a
0: privilege to explore their voices in the rehearsal room.
2: I mean, how did you even get a hold of this text? It's such a personal story. There's so much in there. When did you first encounter it?
0: So, in in December 2021, before the kind of current war, I was in Ukraine with our Songs for Babinyar show. And as we finished the last show, we went out for a celebratory dinner. And as a, as a going home present, my colleagues and friends in, in Ukraine handed me the script of Crimea 5 a.m. And I was a bit bemused and took this yeah. kind of chunky text home and opened it and thought, wow, this is totally fascinating. And then they called me about a week later and they said, We really want you to make this show happen in London. So, I was sort of given it. It as a as kind of a gift and an invitation and almost perhaps an order <laughs> yes. to to make to enable that production to happen
2: and what really drove you to make that production i think
0: i was i think i grappled with it for a while and I reread it a few times and I, I really suddenly realised that this show was really about the wives I thought for a while it was about the men and the men do read out their biographies but they're not present and they weren't present for the interviewers when the interviewers were meeting the families and it, 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 it's really a play about the about the wives and the, and the, the women and, the, and how their lives and the challenges of their lives generally and how they fell in love and how they had children but then really what has happened to them since they've been left alone and how they've really born as a community. The text is immense. I mean, there are 41 named characters. Um, and I couldn't quite work out how it possibly staged the entire piece. So it's a, this is an edited version that we presented in London. The full thing is enormous, but I realised that the heart of the show
2: were the lives of the women. And it was that that I wanted to focus on. And that really came across. I mean, when I watched the performance, for me, what just stood out and what I was left with is the, the humanity, the mundane, as well as the beauty and as well as the the sadness and the trauma that they're left with. And I think those very real moments made me reflect on what my family would do, what I would do in a in a moment that's almost completely unimaginable to experience.
6: I was raised up by a car alarm suddenly going off. It was our car, the time was 5.55 a.m. I looked out of the window but didn't see anyone. I went to the bathroom and then when I came back to the living room, it was lit with bright searchlights from the window and set against those searchlights, I could see the shadows of the men running right here on the drapes, just like that. Shadows running, running, and running. And I was terrified at the thought of how many of them must have been there outside, and yet the running didn't seem to stop. At that point, I would normally wear a dress to bed because we had been ready for something of the sort for a year and a half, for almost two years. Many of us, I mean the wives, would wear dresses to bed because that would be most dreadful, you see, if they had broken into the window, like had broken the glass, gotten inside and seen us, for example, undressed.
0: It's really powerful listening to Shiraz with that scene now, because it's a few months since we did the show. And um, we talked a lot in the rehearsal room about the energy of the piece the actors weren't playing characters they were they were bringing to life the the original voices, the words of these original interviews and how much emotion that we should bring into the scene so we had long conversations in the rehearsal room about whether we were, how, how passive to be just to be vessels for the original words or to bring some emotion and that arrest scene when they start describing how it was to, to be invaded it just felt impossible not to bring some emotion back into that room at that moment because it was the experience was so heightened and um and I was just was just listening back to Shiraz re- where reflecting that note and bringing you know working out for herself navigating that speech and thinking about how it is for her you know what she was absolutely in that moment it, listening back and hear that feeling for her of how how it would have been for her to be
2: experiencing that moment I can really hear that and in- Shiraz's voice and that weight of responsibility, that breath, that exhale breath, Mm. it really stood out to me when I was seeing the performance. Uh, Tell me a little bit more about the group of people that you worked with to bring this performance to life.
0: So it was quite a significant cast, not 41 as um, (laughs) as, as it could have been, but we had a group of, I think, 13 actors, more women than men, because the way that we I staged it. It was all told through the women's experiences, and it was really important for me that we brought together a cast uh, from the UK who, of actors and non-professional actors who might have be able to share their own experiences and bring some of their own live, lived experiences to the stage. So we were privileged to have a few Ukrainian performers in the cast, one of whom is a kind of professional actor who is, has a Ukrainian background and the other one is a non-professional actor who's Ukrainian who lives in the UK, who relocated back to the UK as a result of the, the current invasion. She brought so much to mm. depth and understanding and thought and she was phenomenal Maria Romanenko with. So Maria actually sent me a voice note on my phone a few days after the show.
3: Um, and also, I don't know if you will need this, but um It was a very interesting experience for me to uh, participate in this with the majority of performers being professional actors because they set a very high standard for the performance and for the rehearsals, not just being a non-professional actor doing this but also being surrounded by wonderful, wonderful actors. Um, And as a last thing, uh, obviously, it was very important for me to take part in this because uh, it's continuing to tell the world about what's going on and continuing to tell the world about something that has been happening since 2014 and and something that everybody managed to ignore or pretend it's not happening or minimize or talk less about. So I think it was a very uh, good way to tell the world what's happening and ensure that the world still talks about Crimea.
4: It so happened that I I couldn't go to university straight after school. My father told me, I can't help you. If you want an education, get a job. And so it happened that my sister's husband uh, suggested this cafe in the old town of Bakhti called Ashlema I went there and saw Timur. And I started working there. Well, I was working for um, uh, four months, a season. And I had one of those old phones, you know, the dumb, crappy ones with buttons and black and white screens. And everyone else had those expensive ones with, you know, fancy. And Timur, one day, says to me...
7: Oh, hey, uh, I've got a phone I could give to you, like, for the lowest price. Do you want it? <laughs>
4: and everyone was like, hey, I'll have it. But he persisted.
7: No, no, wait. I offered it to her because, while well, she doesn't have one and... I am kind of sorry for her. Even
4: though everyone had figured it straight away and kept saying,
1: <laughs> Only she can get the phone such <laughs> It's her. Her.
4: He also bought the most expensive ice cream and filled the fridge with it and then refused to eat any of it.
7: Uh, I'm not just, uh, I'm not in the mood for ice cream. So um, you can have it all.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Lo and behold, he asked me, well, to have a chat with him. I was the one who paid everyone. I tried to deal with everybody personally, you know. So at first I thought, oh, there's a problem somewhere. Maybe I made a miscalculation. And yet he says... Uh,
7: You see, it's no joke. I've decided to get married.
4: I wonder what it all had to do with me. You know, I thought that maybe he wanted some advice about this girl or that. Maybe I put them in touch. And again, I was totally clueless. And then he... Well, he says to me...
7: I've decided to get married and uh, I ask you to marry me.
4: <laughs> I
0: also wanted to bring in um, that kind of Turkic experience that the Crimeans have. To think about what the world and the world experience that by being Crimean Tatar and by being Turkish and Muslim would bring to an understanding of the text. And because we're in London and there are unbelievable international actors in this you know, wider community, I was able to work with some phenomenal... Uh, individuals who are themselves from North Africa, from Middle East, from Turkey, um, who can bring their own experience and understanding of that wider world and culture that the Crimean Tatars have.
2: For you, what was that process like as the director?
0: Oh, I loved it. I love it. I mean, I, I think the more... Um, the rich, the, the richer experience in the room, bringing you know, and I love creating that kind of collaborative experience where everyone brings something, and whether that is, oh, you know, everyone, well, everyone in my group would do a warm up because that's part of our process is that they bring something in their background to the room, regardless of their background, and so we had some good fun moments and just playful moments. Um, uh, so, uh, but I think that means that then the journalist will just bring ideas and an understanding that just kind of. Gives more texture so and I loved and I love being able to facilitate that and learn from everybody
2: thats I mean do you never feel overwhelmed by the amount because you're so good I think at responding to the people you're working with I think that's an incredible skill but how do you process that amount of input from other people
0: there's an internal editing function that I have. That um, enables me to sort of to, to absorb and listen, and then say, okay, now well, that's enough. Now <laughs> yeah. let's move on. to Let's move on, or let's take that a bit. I think sometimes it takes a while. I mean, there's moments when someone will tell me something, and I, it'll take a while to be able to reflect on that, and then maybe bring it into the room later, or just say, no, you're right. I find often being able to take absorb people's comments and kind of ideas is is incredibly powerful and incredibly empowering for people in the room to feel that they're being heard. Uh, um, and I, it's a good practice for me to uh, create a space where I can listen to people coming up with an idea that's not the idea, the direction I would have gone in, and be able to, to be able to absorb that. So I, I, I practice that. I'm still not very good at it. <laughs> <laughs> where, I my, well, my automatic reaction—I mean, I think I'm like that as a as a as a, a mum too. It's like no, yeah, <laughs> <maybe> <laughs> no, and then I go, oh, actually maybe that's a good idea.
8: It was a rare habit of on. Something not very common. To other men, that he always waited till we finished eating at the table before even touching the food himself. Honestly, I've almost never witnessed anything of the sort before. He would sit there at the table and wait, and I kept telling him, begging him to eat something, like the dish is supposed to be served hot, and it's already growing colder. He insisted, no, you should eat first. He would wait until everybody finished their meal, then ask the children if they wanted uh, another helping. And only after the meal was over, everybody had finished. And I was literally about to clean up the table. He would begin his meal.
0: Crimea 5am was written by two unbelievable playwrights. Natalka Voroshbit, who's a wonderful Ukrainian playwright with whom I have worked for other Dash projects in the past, and Anastasia Kosody. And we reached out to Anastasia, who's currently in Berlin, relocated from Kiev, to ask her about her experience of writing the piece. Anastasia, it's so lovely to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you too. And so lovely to speak to you. <laughs> in the, in the in the um in the introduction to your text to the play script, uh, you talked about two intentions behind the piece that you really hoped would be brought out through the staging of it. One of them was that the piece would never be fully kind of dramatically staged, and um, because you, you wanted to keep it as real as you know, keep it closer to the reality of the existence for the for these political prisoners and their families. And the other one was. Uh, that try to find ways to introduce non professional performers alongside the professionals, and I really tried to stick to both of those intentions in last staging, but I would love to hear from you why you felt though they were those were particularly important for you about the presentation of the work.
9: Well, how I usually write I usually do the documentary research, but then it turns into like a fictional text so people somehow protect it. Um, by the fiction, fictionalization of it, by the metaphors and so on and so on. But here it wasn't possible, and of course, so many people, and you know, it, usually, yes, people can be sad or sad that you wrote something and you didn't change some mistakes that they did in the, in the speaking, but in that case, it, these people can be arrested, you know, and for, for a very long time or killed or something or raped uh, just because of your text, and it was um, very big. Very big pressure, um, of course. But I remember when we had the first presentation in the end of two thousand twenty-one in in Kyiv, in the in a very big venue in the center of Kyiv, on Maidan, and um, uh, I knew that all the all the of the of the political prisoners I will be watching because there is there was a live stream. Um, like many cameras it's a very good quality of video and i was terrified because i knew that like when the show will be will end then i will learn like what what do they think they saw the text of course before uh so on but still um the idea behind this first reading especially was to invite a lot of um well ukrainian celebrities uh to read the text and um My feeling was not all of them did the job very well. And so it was anxiety on many levels. um, And I was very relieved in the end when the organizers told us that the wives sent them messages that they're happy Uh, that it happened. And they they loved the presentation, they loved the text, and they loved that, uh, um, well, you know, there is so much attention to this topic because, of course, oftentimes they feel quite abandoned even by uh, by Ukraine uh, and being you know abandoned in this in, in Crimea with uh, with husbands who are in prison for many many years but uh, and coming back to your question why um, why no like full-blown performance I mean it can happen of course uh, but uh, on the, on an ethical from the ethical point of view I cannot imagine um Making, making it, you know, enjoyable. I don't know, uh, in the, in the theatrical way um, on stage, um, because the point is not about that. The point is that uh, you know, this the, the, we have to somehow help uh, help these people, and you know, and help to deoccupy the Crimea, help to these people to return from prison, because many of them are already like. Five, six years there, some people already died because they were not given proper help. My big um, sadness, because um, we only had one reading in Kiev, and, uh, well, Jamala, who's Crimean Tatar, she was doing the music for this reading, but everybody else was Ukrainian, not Crimean Tatar. Um, and it saddened me, of course, very much, because we are doing the play about them, but sort of without them. Um, and I knew that there were plans to do uh, more and more readings, but they, of course, never happened because of Russian invasion. And when you told me that you want to invite um, Muslim women across like different countries, I was uh, generally very happy about it because I knew, of course, that it will bring something something else to the performance, and it's it's a very uh, it's a very good move.
7: They're coming for us as well.
9: So that morning.
4: There was a knock on the door Um, when he was making his way to the door, putting his shirt on, going through the hallway. I said to him, hurry up, hurry up, open the door. They will break it down. They'll break down the door. And sure enough, as soon as I said it, they started threatening, saying that they would break down the door. Thankfully, he got to the door quickly, let them in. And when they entered, they saw how massive he actually was. You know, the first thing they normally do is they break the door, they punch you and force you to the ground. But yet they were just standing there, looking at him, watching him. Until one of them said...
7: We won't get physical if you promise to play nice. Okay? Sure thing. Very nice.
4: When I asked them what on earth it was they were looking for, they they said it was something about literature and weapons and so on. When they finally reached the bedroom, they turned their attention to the children's backpacks, started investigating every page of the report book and every notebook.
7: Aren't the children supposed to be leaving for school? You usually send them to school at this hour, right?
4: And it so happened that he looked through her report book and said,
7: So what, your
8: daughter is an A-list student? Is that it? Hmm? What study groups did you attend? Gymnastics. <coughs> Any others? You study Arabic, don't you? Yes. Do you like gymnastics?
4: Uh, I have one Arabic class, the one where we study surah.
8: Ah. Uh, could you perhaps tell us? Just so we know more about the difference. Just in case somebody doesn't know what it all means.
4: Well,
3: we study surah but learn about the different prophets. What's then. your
8: favourite prophet?
3: Oh, my
4: favourite is Suleiman.
8: Suleiman. Mm-hmm. And why is that so?
4: Because
5: he loves animals. Mm -mm.
3: Loves animals. I like Muhammad because he was truthful. That's why they called him Al-Amin.
5: And what kind of
8: animals do you like?
3: Tigers.
8: (laughs) Tigers. Is that because they're strong? Or because of their luscious fur?
3: And I like rabbits. They're cute and fluffy.
8: They're also very fast runners.
3: Yes, and very high jumpers.
8: Mm, High jumpers, indeed. Now,
6: do you like school? What's your favorite subject?
2: I like all my subjects. Mm-hmm. I'm the best at tables in my class.
5: You are, aren't you?
4: Oh well, we are A students.
5: I see. Yeah, I can see that you're A students.
4: I went on to empty the bags and scattered the toys on the floor, and I wondered, now, what on earth are you going to find inside the toys?
9: This idea of this investigator who comes as a perpetrator and also asks like I mean very invasive but also like routine questions about like also children, what is your favorite color, what do you like to study in school and so on <laughs> We wanted to give this this eerie Feeling of, um, she cannot escape, of course, is questioning. I so love that you brought that up, Anastasia, because
0: we had the most thoughtful conversation in the room about that very scene, because we had a non professional as well as professional actors in the room with us, and we were discussing that scene. And someone said, "What?" One of the actors said, "Why have they kept this in this very mundane conversation about what what they're studying at school? Because this is this investigator. He's terrifying, and he's having this seemingly quite mundane conversation with the children about their favourite subject. And um, what's going on? Like, what's the intention behind? Like, what's going on for that investigator in that moment? Why does he ask that question? And what was absolutely phenomenal was that one of our non-professional." Ukrainian, the the wonderful Ukrainian Maria Romanenko, the, uh, who is Ukrainian journalist who joined us, came from Manchester down to London to be part of the piece. She said, please do not humanise these people. Like, please do not have this conversation about this Russian aggressor. He's an aggressor. He's a, he, he joined up. He didn't need to join up. It was his decision. We shouldn't try to understand them. And it was an absolute moment for me in that, in that conversation of, like, the tension between theatre and... And kind of real life, you know, that actually that theatre, that that's what we do as theatre makers, right? We try to understand, we try to put ourselves in, in the shoes of people with whom we kind of sometimes feel discomfort. But for her, it was like, it, it was just absolutely, you know, these are the enemy. They're doing horrific, terrible things to people. We shouldn't try to understand them because they they are impenetrable. You know what they're doing is pure evil, and I—I don't know what your thoughts are listening to me telling you that because I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. It was a really fascinating moment. We went through it anyway. We discussed it because, and then we found the um, the eeriness, like how unsettling it was to be the mother having this um, this this aggressive person questioning her children about uh, what their favorite subject was and how it felt for her, the terror that she felt in that moment, in that kind of banality of evil moment, which we really enjoyed looking at. But what do you think about Maria's M- Maria's response?
9: My fear always dealing with the subject when you clearly write about like Russian-Ukrainian war and you have to portray Russians somehow. Um, on one hand, um, not to paint them as this Caricature, I don't know, like puppet villains. Um, but on the other hand, not to glamorize the evil also too much, which um, it happens uh, a lot, I think. And even like with this uh, subject of the this night raids, when the like soldiers come at night and so on and so on, and then this question, you still can make it beautiful somehow in the, in a the play, and I think on stage too. But the. Um, and then you want to think, yes, what is like, what is this, uh, you know, person thinks about when he asks children, like what well, is so As a good actor would probably do, uh, but um, the 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 thing is that it's usually it's very banal. Uh, it's not uh, there is no deep thoughts to it. They do it because they, they do it because were, there is a thing, mm, at least in the longest version of the play, there is um uh, Interview with one of the Crimean Tatars who gives like his reasoning for why, why Russians are doing what they're doing in Crimea, and the only reasoning is that they're getting like flats uh, in Crimea and they're getting like the pay raise, and that's it because there is no no big motivation to it, and this is kind of what we what we try to uh, write to it uh, because yeah, um, no big uh, idea behind it.
1: They broke the door with a crowbar, and before I could even raise my head, I could already hear them upstairs shouting to my husband, down, hands behind the back. And all that dreadful shouting woke up the children. They came out of their rooms. I I got dressed, joined them, and saw the following picture. The children were just standing there in tears while these men were holding their father, handcuffed, on the ground, and pointing guns at him. Like, of course I got outraged. Now, get up! Get him up! Are you blind? Don't you see how, how you're frightening the children? He is their father, the best father, and you dare to... Such things to him. Make him suffer in front of them. Make them suffer, because they have to watch it all.
7: I wasn't afraid for myself that much in the first place. Rather, I was afraid they would break the door and the windows, because then, well, how on earth were we supposed to fix that? So uh, I was in such a hurry to get the door, largely so that they wouldn't force themselves in.
9: Now we are thinking about making a documentary movie based on this, uh, based on, based on this text. Uh, Together with director Dmitro Kostiminsky, who is now on the front line, but still we are trying to find some funding uh, to make this happen Um, and hopefully maybe if before we could have only thought that maybe we will do some secret footage in Crimea with people who will be secretly hired for for that task, now maybe they will be a part of the movie in the occupied Crimea in the free Crimea and it will be something completely different we'll see Uh, I of course very much hope for that
2: so what was it like to work with Anastasia
0: well she's an amazing writer an incredible precision and gaze on life and a real sensitivity to the material and so around that time I was given access to an extraordinary body of material called the reckoning project, which is a collection of audio and video testimonies of survivors and witnesses to the current atrocities in Ukraine that are happening now. They're collecting these these recordings in order for them to be legally admissible in court. And they're very keen that these stories are out there in the world and effectively in the court of public opinion as well. And I've been privileged to have been given this archive of material to turn into a piece of documentary theatre. And Anastasia is obviously the person with whom I want to make the project, having gone through this process and seen how amazing her writing is. And the Reckoning project is run by some amazing Ukrainian journalists and reporters who are bringing together this material. And at the helm in Ukraine is the journalist, Analyst and filmmaker Natalia Guminyuk, who also has spent quite a lot of time working with the families and the political prisoners in Crimea. So during the rehearsal process for Crimea 5am earlier in the year, we brought Natalia Guminyuk from Kiev in, in via Zoom into our rehearsal room to talk to all of us, the actors, the cast and myself and the creative team about what's really happening in Crimea.
10: And I met these first five families. Uh, I would remember it was already 2016, you know, two years since the invasion, made this first interview, and they really had the hope that it's just not right. The, the the court cases, they are not keeping together. It's very easy to prove that these people are innocent. And they were hoping that their husbands would be back in a half a year, in, in a year, in, you know, like or maybe, in, you know, very soon. Uh, but then they were more and more and more and more. And I remember very well that a year after I came to the, they, they were they extremely organized people. Then the next year I came and there was this room where there were 50 kids playing and all the kids were the kids of the political prisoners. So for me, it was very, very, very painful to observe how with the time every year you think this is impossible, it shouldn't happen, these people are innocent, and then you see five families, 10 families, 30 families, 40 families, and it's lasting for eight, seven years, you know, like really long time, really long time. That despite all the evidence, despite the, you know, like international advocacy, despite everything, there was, you cannot influence anything. And in the end, those people had been Charge some for 20 years in prisons, you know, like really uh, on the fake fabricated cases. So I stayed in touch. I cannot say that Crimea was my only thing. I was doing lots of other things. But on top of that, you know, when there would be the Crimean families coming, I felt like it's already my obligation. I know the people to tell their stories. So we've been doing like recording the monologue of the mothers and the wives when they would come to Kiev. I would go on later next. Anytime I would go probably once per year, I would go to Crimea and I would record the story of the political prisoners. So quite a few um, people in the the 5 a.m. play, I remember when I was doing like their first interviews. Then just to say in 2019, COVID hit and it was impossible any longer to travel to Crimea for me. But yes, I stayed in touch with these people, and again, it's like quite a f- painful, painful experience uh, to see how, you know, it's not just the news stories, but you met the the mother, you made the first interview with her, and then you know, like the person would be for two years uh, under, without the investigation and proper trial, uh, arbitrarily detained somewhere in Crimea, and then this person receives like twenty years kind of feels a bit stronger than just news my always task was to make it the story more international and more you know more known because with the years the connection was a bit lost between you know the the rest of the ukraine and crimea also i should say and something i should stress russia managed to portray some of the crimean tatars as extremist and terrorism and what I felt that internationally, some of the legal human rights activists and international organization would also be cautious to defend some of the Crimean Tatars, especially those who are like religious. So I, I think that the the story was not really covered properly and you know treated seriously enough. And generally, it was always the understanding that. Crimea is still the Russian sphere of influence, we can do little. So I think there was disproportionately less attention to Crimea. For me, it was more clear that without overtaking in a military way Crimea, Russia would never be able to start to launch the full-scale war on Ukraine. And we need to move all this kind of political idea about the Russian greatness and idea to occupy this peninsula Aside, there is a very clear idea that there is a military strategy behind the occupation of Crimea. The war against Ukraine would be possible just when the Russian military controlled the Crimea. The peninsula is nothing but the Russian military base. You know, like there should be somebody, people on the ground to tell like that's hundreds, hundreds of the Russian tanks are there. There is something going on. And the fact that we don't hear much from Crimea now is really thanks to the fact that they were detaining these people for for many years.
0: Uh, Natalia that was phenomenal it's so interesting it was so helpful to hear your insights and the journey and your obviously the length of time that you've spent getting to know these communities and to hear your insights about the parties the the kind of community of women families were supported is very helpful because obviously that's the world where we which we're depicting very much for for our interpretation of Crimea 5am so Thank you for that. Did you have any kind of particular connection
10: to any of the women? I I met them, I, you know, I met so many. I I don't remember exactly who would be in the 5AM, but I think I met most of them. Generally, maybe my my would be impression, they're incredibly strong women, absolutely. Uh, Wives and uh, mothers, it's just amazing. Uh, They are very much supportive of each other. They help each other. They all become very good friends. And again, like they always say, like we obtain the families. And by the way, something to mention, which often is not mentioned, the Crimean solidarity probably, honestly, was the only independent organization of that kind in the whole Russia. The situation in Crimea was generally worse than in the whole Russian mainland, if you speak about the repression and persecutions, because, of course, there would be more security service people there, they would watch and search for a possible resistance or things like that. When there is a court case, Crimean Solidarity would, would gather in front of the, the court building. If the political prisoners are taken back somewhere to the Russia, to Rostov, or to for a trial, they would travel. Uh, they still need to make it very loose, so it's not organized, you know, it's not a formal NGO like that. But at the same time, it also was very distinct that in the whole huge Russia, this tiny group of the Crimean Tatars, wives and mothers, and like some relatives would be honestly the only real strong, independent, tiny movement which survived in the whole Russia. Is,
4: is that how um like how they communicated with each other to sort of um share advice about how to behave when uh, they finally get arrested if they do because they talk about that a lot in the play which i found very moving and terrifying as well as a mother as well how the mothers were saying well We had talked about this with the children for a long time. We had prepared them. We were prepared how important it was to pass the information on, but also how horrific to have to live with that knowledge that, okay, it probably will happen, and this is how we have to act to protect ourselves as much as we can. Mm
10: I think it comes also from the Soviet legacy because you know uh, there was this period of time of 20 years when they were not under threat, but the Crimean Tatars, yes, they were deported till the 80s, in the end of the 80s, they returned to, to, Kiev, to Ukraine, uh, to Crimea. And I think that's something that they knew. So they managed to pass it from generation to generation. Uh, that's why they were more, let's say, honestly more trained. I should also say that we cannot say that everybody is like that. There are 300,000 300, Crimean Tatars in Crimea. I, I understand the dilemma for the Crimean Tatars. They One of their ideas is really to stay in the territory. So they really need to adjust to the occupying power because for a few year, times they've been deported and lost their, uh, their land. And at the same time, you need to both resist. So it's an unsolvable dilemma. And I, I do think that they kind of manage to, to, to find this way. And that's kind of a thinking which is in every family. So you really need to explain to your kids, you explain to yourself, you constantly live with the idea explaining why you stay, why you're not leaving. And if you decide to leave, you need to always, always find this, this way. It's a huge burden.
6: Do the women, because obviously they seem to organize themselves in a kind of soft way, do, are they at any risk of also being imprisoned?
10: There were largely the Russians, usually stay kept uh, women not uh, arrested. It's quite common. Uh, but uh, some of them, there were the cases then that they were temporary detained, you know, like for a day or for two. Uh, there were the cases against, you know, one elderly daughter of one of the political prisoners. Uh, so the risks are there and there is a constant idea that, that 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 something might happen to somebody so you're not totally safe but largely still the um, but by the way by the even even by the russian um penal code despite its you know lawless state a mother a single mother uh has some you know excuses i think that would be you know even if you're like they still prepare create these uh, monkey trials, sham courts. But look, if it's the mother of three, you know, like they probably wouldn't detain her because like, uh, th- there are some other type of the rules. So maybe that's a part of the story why they don't really put such an effort. But if somebody would be very fierceless, uh, uh, they, they might be the case, but we have the last cases of this type.
8: i Yasmin, I'm one of the performers. Um... And I just wanted to ask you, I'm very curious about this. Um, usually when there are these, uh, cause you said in the Russian penal code, there are these exceptions, exceptional excuses that can be made for single mothers, especially if they have like multiple children. Uh, I mean, just from my experience, uh, like usually <clears throat> uh, there's always like a, a, a subvert, an active subversion in these kinds of situations where women, where women would take advantage of the fact that maybe they, they're a little bit untouchable so they
10: will oh but that's why they everything they do is also a bit because of that because they also think that they so far can they always like challenging the the red line they're always thinking where is the boundary then there would be the case that somebody can be detained for a day and they understand maybe they need to stop you know like so so it's really they are always you know trying a bit you know like they're all becoming a bit more determined with the time yeah they're pushing the boundaries but but yes
0: was a, was a, there's a Crimean Tata who's in London who came and joined us in the room. And uh, she said that there's a feeling of, of potential hope and optimism now amongst yeah. the Crimean Tatar. There might be an opportunity. This war has given them an opportunity. Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine.
10: Yeah, there is a bit hope. You know, it's getting worse, but they really treat it a bit like, you know, like it's the darkest before the uh, dawn. Because it's really now not about this, what happened in 2014. There is an actual, you know, garrison from where the launch pod of the military attacks on Ukraine are taking place. What we understand that even the Americans and the West, they totally okay with Ukrainians, Ukrainian army launching the military strikes on Crimea, you know, which wouldn't be the case three years ago at all from the security perspective, there is a clear idea why Crimea cannot stay in the Russian hands as it is. You know, there is some change.
1: On September 16th, 2020, Suleyman was sentenced to 19 years in a high security prison. The defense has filed an appeal. I was there to hear the verdict tell the truth, I couldn't hear the whole speech out. I mean, the closing lines. I kept trying to catch Suleiman's eye in that bloody fish tank. I mean, I even got a stitch in my leg. I couldn't tell why. I, I must have been trying to stand on my tiptoes to get up higher, to have a glimpse of him behind. All those men, what do you call it? Like the, the escort. When the prosecution demanded 20 years for him, I prepared myself for the worse. Right, 20 years, no less. The thought lingered in my mind, it cannot possibly be less, there is no justice in this world. But still, I hoped for God's mercy, oh, I did. And I still hope against all hope I hope for a miracle, (coughs) for a miracle from Allah, Allah will turn the clock back and we will wake up just as we did back in 2014 because actually we've done nothing, just woke up in another reality, it all happened at the drop of a hat, so maybe, just maybe, it will happen again, they'll let him go. As if all of it were a dream, as if the Russians were never here, because injustice justice must gain the upper hand, right? And injustice must disappear off the face of the earth. <laughs> he saw me cry, he knows me like the palm of his hand, like how I am. Well very vulnerable and uh, my dad always tells me you must have been the first in line when Allah was giving away tears
0: One of the other non-professional actors who we had the privilege of working with was Alexandra Hall Hall, who is the former British ambassador to Georgia, currently living in Washington. And she also joined us for the post-show conversation because her insights were phenomenal because she's had such a kind of privileged position of being a diplomat and working and moving in political circles. Um, and and what she was able to share from that perspective on what's going on and what kind of the Foreign Office the official the official take on what's going on and what should be happening um, in Crimea today it was amazing.
11: The most important thing this play did is personalise these stories because it's very easy to see human rights issues as thirty people arrested, forty people detained, twenty five years and you can get numb to some of the stories and some of the statistics because there's a lot going on around the world, not just in Ukraine, but in Myanmar and Sudan and Syria. And I got so wrapped up in the stories that I almost missed a couple of my cues because I was actually listening to the stories and the talent of the actors that you saw was so good. One of the wider lessons is that appeasement of Russia does not work appeasement of any extremists doesn't work. I mean, Ukraine is uh, the first country that has seriously laid down a marker for Russia, but they have to be backed up by all of us. They can only succeed with our... Resolve and we have to be resolved to win this war. It's not enough to give Ukraine just enough weapons to keep fighting and keep dying They actually have to win this and we finally have to learn the lesson as some of you will know from my biography I was ambassador in Georgia. I see what the Russians do they occupy land and Then they hold that country through leverage of holding a part of that territory And they manipulate the sentiments of the people who live in that territory. They bring people in from Russia and they move the populations to change the ethnic balance and then claim that there are mainly Russians there who want to be united with Russia. And they are manipulating it. And so there is no stable peace that can be found in Ukraine as long as Russians remain on Ukrainian territory and believe they have a right to part of Ukrainian territory.
0: When faced with what feels like an insurmountable problem that feels geographically so far away, I found it vitally important to remember how relevant it is and how tangible change can be while these men are still being held in prison for years.
11: I do think there's a danger that so much focus has been paid on Ukraine rather than on Crimea. And I also worry that any peace negotiations, the obvious bargaining chip remains Crimea. I'm not advocating that myself. So I think keeping alive the issue of Crimea, reminding people that this conflict didn't just begin last year, it's been going on for a long time, is very important. And then raising the individual cases. As the head of human rights in the Foreign Office, the letters we got from individual members of the public bringing to our attention individual prisoners of conscience, and these men are prisoners of conscience, is very powerful.
0: Thank you hugely to the Ukrainian Institute and to the British Council, to the Kiln, to my extraordinary creative team and production team and the unbelievable cast of actors for bringing this play to life. Um, It was just a privilege to spend that time working on this text and also to relive it for this podcast. So thank you, Marie.
2: Thanks for having me. It was my pleasure.
0: And if you like the Dash Arts podcast, please share it with your friends and rate and review us because it means the world to us. And we'll see you soon on the Dash Arts podcast.